are continuing our uh, series in the book of First John. So if you weren't with us last week, we began a new message series where just each week we're taking a moment to truly just uh, focus on uh, one chapter or one part of a chapter. And so today we're going to be in First John chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to First John chapter 2. If not, it's going to be up on the screens for you today. Chapter 2 is the longest of the five chapters in 1 John, and so we're not going to read all of it, but we are going to look at the core passage of 1 John chapter 2. But before we get to the core passage, we're going to look at what John says right before the core passage. And so let's read 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. John says, I'm writing to you who are God's Children, because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. So right off the bat, throughout this letter, he's really honing in on who his audience is. He's writing to people who have a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus, who have been grafted into his family, okay? And so right off the bat, that makes us think about, are you a part of God's family? It's a question all of us have to ask in our lives, individually, before God. And if you don't know if you're a member of God's family, it simply takes simple faith and trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection to be grafted into his family. And so John says, I'm writing to you because of your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. He says, I'm writing to you who are mature in faith because you know Christ, who existed from the beginning. I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. He says, I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. You see, it kind of sounds like we just um, had a bunch of typos and repeated the same thing twice, but it's not a typo. That's exactly what John does for us. He goes through the same thing twice. No one really knows why. He kind of repeats the same thing twice, except for the fact that we learn by repetition, don't we? Think about children these days. We just repeat, repeat, repeat. Hopefully they will learn. And this is exactly what John wants to do for us because we are like children. We need to hear the same things over and over again so that we can apply them to our lives. Here's what John is trying to tell us in 1 John 2, 12 through 14. He's basically saying that all Christians, all people who are part of the family of God should have three things. First, we should have an innocent, simple faith like children. Innocent, simple faith like children. Then he goes on to say that we also need to have the strength of youth and the heart to do spiritual battle. So even though our physical bodies may not be ready for battle, our spiritual bodies are. And as children of God, we should be ready for that battle. And then he also says the mature, we should have mature knowledge and wisdom that comes with age. Or in other words, we should be maturing in our faith as we grow no matter how old or young we are. And so why is John saying these words to these people? Well, it's because he wants to give them a warning. Because right after this passage, he's giving them a warning, saying, hey, listen, 
This is what you should have because here's the warning. Here's the battle that is at hand. John knows that they have assurance and confidence in Christ, but at the same time, they have to be watchful for what's about what he's about to say. And so let's take a moment to just really look at John's warning in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Again, kind of the core passage in 1 John chapter 2. He says this. He says, do not love this world nor the things it offers. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. It's a pretty bold statement. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And so what is John trying to tell us here in this passage? Well, maybe you notice the repetition of one word in the midst of this passage. Did you notice it? It's the word world. It's the word world. And what we've seen in chapter 1 is John really does compare and contrast a lot. So he's kind of comparing and contrasting following God and following the world in this passage. And so what he says first, we have to look at, is says, do not love this world. Do not love this world. He says the word five times in this passage. And so we have to think about this idea. What is he talking about? What does this word world actually mean? Now, John wrote 1 John, but he also wrote the Gospel of John, which how many of you know John 3.16? Maybe you've heard it before. right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And listen, Ephesians tells us that we need to imitate God. So this is basically saying if God loves the world, guess what? We have to love the world. Wait a minute. Let's go back. John's also saying do not love the world. And so this poses a very important question for us in our lives. Do we love the world or do we not love the world? What is it, John? What do you want us to do? And so we have to look at that word world. And so in John 3.16, you can probably imagine that when he refers to the word world, which is cosmos, he's referring to the universe and all of God's creation. So for God so loved the world, for God so loved the universe, he loved everything he created, he also loves the people he created, he also loves everything that's going on in the world because he loves his creation. So great is God's love toward the world that he, in fact, he sent his only son, Jesus, to reconcile us back to him, to atone for our sins. That's how much he loves you and me today. God loves the world so much that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him becomes a part of his family. And so in John 3.16, that's the, the word world, cosmos, brings this idea of universe and what God created. But then when we go to 1 John 2, the word world or cosmos usually means this. It means he's signifying humanity organized in rebellion against God. So he's referring to a specific humanity that is just organized 
in rebellion against God. And so he's really referring to this world as a humanistic system that's at odds with God. And actually, Scripture just says that time and time again. This world is marked by a corrupt value system. This world is marked by applauding sin and and not knowing right from wrong. This world is a lot like the book of Judges where we do what's right in our own eyes without regard to who God is. And Scripture is clear that the world lies in darkness and is under control of the evil one. And so when we come to 1 John chapter 2 and it says this word world, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about this humanity that's organized in rebellion against God. And so here lies the tension for Christians because we're told to love the world, but we're also told not to love the world. So here's the tension. As Christians, me and you today, we are to love the world that we live in and all of its people. Okay? But we also have to reject the beliefs, values, and practices of the world. Do you see this? We have to love the world, everything God created, and even the people in it, that's hard sometimes, while rejecting the beliefs, values, and practices of the world. This is our tension. This is what we live in on a day-to-day basis. You want to know why I know that? Because I feel it. I feel it. You feel it. We all feel this tension that if you're a follower of Jesus, we have this idea where, hey, I I need to live differently than the world. And yet, we're just always drawn back to this idea of what the world has to offer us. We're We're drawn to this trap, if you will, this snare, as the Psalms say often. And so, How do we fall into the trap of the loving world? How do we start to love the world when we know who Jesus is and what he did for us, and we know how we should be living, and yet we oftentimes, how do we fall back into that trap? Well, John tells us in verse 15, 16. It says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Okay, I love that word offers there. So I want you to imagine you're at some fancy party with a platter. You know, people walk around with a platter with the the things on it, the really good food. And imagine when that platter comes to you and they offer you the food, do you ever say no? Like, would you ever say no to, like, bacon-wrapped anything? No. No. You wouldn't. It's offered to you on a platter. It's there. You don't even have to move to go get that food. It's offered to you. I've never been to one of those parties. Maybe you have. But I can tell you this, that when it's offered, it's easy to take it, isn't it? And so what is this passage saying? I love what uh, the the NIV words it differently and the ESV, and I think they word it better. Here's what the world offers us on a platter. it's, It's there for us. The world offers the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things don't come from the Father, but they come from the world. This is what the world's doing to us. It's coming at us with the same platter every day with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life ready for you to take it. Ready for you to choose that from the world. And so we have to really break this down 
for a little bit. And so the world comes at us in three different ways. I've already explained that. First, it comes at us with the lust of the flesh. When we say the lust of the flesh, we're meaning a preoccupation with satisfying and gratifying physical desires. Satisfying and gratifying physical desires. Physical desires are good but can be twisted, can't they? Like, phys- like food is good and it, it fills us, but food can become bad when it turns into gluttony. When we in- overindulge, if you will. Sex is good in context the way God created it, but when it's out of context, it's twisted, it's bent, it's not good, right? So there are physical desires that have been created as good for us, but the world twists them. That's what the lust of the flesh is. It's a preoccupation with satisfying and gratifying physical desires. The lust of the eyes is a craving for an accumulation of things, Accumulation of things is fine, but it can be twisted. You guys can kind of track with me here, right? Like God gives us these things. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. But yet if we continually go into debt for them, then it can be twisted, can it? Because now all of a sudden we're not using our money in a good stewardship way, right? Or if you think about these nice things that we want in life, if they become to define who you are, they can be twisted. So the lust of the eyes is craving for an accumulation of things that you don't have, that you want in life. And the pride of life, the pride of life is obsession with one's own status, accomplishments, and importance. Recognition and success are good, but it can be twisted. This one is very convicting for me because how often do I post something on Facebook just for the recognition? How often do I think about, hey, if I do this, I'm going to look good and people will think I'm important in this world. This is a lie in our culture that's very heavy right now. Where so often, so many times, people are doing some really amazing things, yet the world says, hey, you're not doing it enough because you're not important enough. And we believe the lie and we jump into it. You see, John is warning us. He wants us to understand that we live in a broken world where good things that God has given have been distorted, have been bent, and have been twisted. And each of us have this sinful nature, a nature that's prone to go after uh, what the world offers on that platter for us, even when we're firmly in the family of God. Maybe you feel that tension, because I still do. Where I know what's right, I, I can see the lust of the flesh, I can see the lust of the eyes, I can see the pride of life, and yet oftentimes I catch myself taking off of that platter. It's truly like an unholy trinity, the world that what it offers, our sinful nature and the evil one working together to make us love the world. So do you feel that tension? Do you feel that in your own lives? Listen, what we have to understand is that the enemy has tempted this way, us this way our entire lives, also since the beginning of time. Since the beginning, the enemy has been tempting people the same exact way. People say the enemy is not creative. 
He is crafty. He's not creative. He is crafty, and I'll show you why. Uh, If you think of the example of Adam and Eve, the enemy comes in, and you know what he does? Uh, God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the serpent took advantage of her free choice, and that was the start. And so the lust of the flesh, she saw that the tree was good for food. So all of a sudden, she's not thinking about what God said. She's looking at what's on the tree, and she says, hey, that's going to satisfy my physical desire. And then on top of that is the lust of the eyes. Satan promises, sorry, the fruit was pleasing to the eye. She saw it. Not only was it good for food, but it was also pleasing to the eye. It was something that, um, for those of you that have kids, it's something that, um, she wanted, and her father said not to, to take, and yeah, how often do you, they keep going for it, <laughs> often, right, like, you say, hey, don't, don't take that, and then they just kind of look at you, and just want, want that, that's the lust of the eyes, the fruit was pleasing to her, and then the pride of life, this is kind of the capstone where the enemy says, listen, you won't die if you eat this, you'll just become like God, So all of a sudden, this pride of life comes in, and she says, hey, I can go through life without God and be God myself? Awesome. I get the recognition. I get the importance. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And she failed. Adam failed, didn't they? And that's when sin entered into our world. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and from that moment... The relationship between God and humanity were at odds until Christ came and redeemed that, reconciled that, atoned for our sins. You see, but Jesus wasn't without temptation either. Thousands of years later, after Adam and Eve were tempted, guess what the enemy was doing? The same exact thing. Remember, he's not creative, but he is crafty. Jesus was alone in the desert. He had just been baptized, and and the Spirit came upon him, and he was driven out into the wilderness, and he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and while he was out there, he was tempted by Satan. Guess what? Guess what was on the platter? First, it was the lust of the flesh. Satan said, hey, turn these stones into bread, and you'll, you'll satisfy your physical hunger. Does Jesus do it? Absolutely not. He quotes scripture to him. Uh, Next is the lust of the eyes. Satan brings him to a hilltop, and Satan says, hey, you can have this entire kingdom if you bow down to me. Right? Jesus is seeing this kingdom, and all of a sudden it's like, no, I'm not going to go after this lust of the eyes. I don't need that because I have something greater than this. And then there's the pride of life. Satan challenges Jesus to jump off a high place and have angels catch him which is important, recognition, it shows his, his power, if you will. You see how the enemy is not creative but crafty? How he comes at us with the same things where Jesus was perfect, we fail constantly. There is not a Christ follower in any corner of the globe at any time in history who has not had to try to figure out how to live in the world but not of the world. There is not a Christian Christ follower who has not had to figure out how to love God's world but not love the world and fight against this worldliness. We all feel this tension and the pride is continually coming at us with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's going to continue to do it. And so we are left, we are left 
asking ourselves three things. We can't control our enemy, but we do know his tactics. As you read scripture, you can see his tactics coming at us. And so you have to ask yourself, the lust of the flesh, what in our life has been distorted when it comes to our physical desires? What type of physical desires do you keep taking off the platter of the world even though you know what Christ has done for you? Only you can answer that for your own life. What about the lust of the eyes? How much do you crave the accumulation of things? How much do the things of the world just entice you and you just want what you can't have or what you don't have, really, I should say? And how often do we make those things an idol in our life? And then what about the pride of life? How obsessed are you with your status and accomplishments? How obsessed are we with our status and accomplishments? This is what he's going to come at us with. This is the temptation we're going to face on a daily basis. This is what the enemy is going to offer us right in front of us every day. So we have to resist that. We have to resist this temptation from the world. And there's two reasons why we should resist this. As enticing as it's going to be, and we read this in verse 17, we should resist the temptation from the world because the world is fading away. Along with everything that people crave. So everything that we crave, all the possessions, all the physical desires, all the accomplishments and all that stuff that we just hone in on in our lives is going to be gone. But anyone who does what pleases God, which is not following the world, we read that in verse 16, will live forever. Eternal life comes through faith in Christ. And when we have faith in Christ, that should motivate us to not love the world. It's that simple. It's that simple. This tells us two things. First, we need to understand where history is headed. One day the world will pass away, not God's creation, but rather the world's system that is opposed to God. There's going to be a day where there's going to be no more lust of the flesh, no more lust of the eyes, and no more pride of life. There's only going to be good desires that God originally intended. How amazing is that? Through Christ, there is that hope that those things are going to be gone the smart and wise Christian needs to embrace where history is going. And not only that, but we also need to understand that pleasing God, not loving the world, pays off now and forever. Pays off now and forever. Pleasing God may be tough now, but it's going to pay off now and forever for eternity. Listen, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christ follower, if you claim to be a part of the family of God, John says this in chapter 2, you should live as Christ lived. Christ resisted the lust of the flesh. He resisted the lust of the eyes. And he resisted the pride of life. Now, he did that so he could be our righteousness. We're never going to be perfect. You're going to take from that platter. We all are. We all do. And that's where 1 John 1 comes in. That's why living the Christian life is not perfection. It's confession. 
And so when we fall into this and we don't live as Christ did, we just can continually come back to God because of the assurance that we have in him. And so as we close today, I want you to truly think about your life. How often are you jumping into what the world has to offer? How often are you resisting what the world has to offer? Those are questions you have to ask yourself in your own lives. We're going to close with a prayer this morning. And as I'm praying, I just want you to know uh, we're going to be praying for two things here real quick. First, we're going to be praying for what we just heard. That in light of what we just heard from 1 John 2, 15 through 17, how are we going to apply God's word to our hearts? Because that's the point of this. I'm not here to just give you information. I want you to apply this. I want the spirit to apply this. And not only that, we're also going to pray for Tuesday. This is a big time in our culture right now. And so we need to pray for God's will. Let's pray. Lord, we address you as Lord because that is who you are. You are Lord over all, over all creation, over all history, over all individual lives, whether someone embraces that or not. You are Lord over our governments, Lord over our political leaders, and Lord over elections. There's so much debate about who should win the presidential election and other election, but when it comes to this room today, we are in awe that you would elect us to become your children, members of your family, simply by your grace through our simple faith in Jesus. That is the election we sing about and for which we give praise. Governments, governors, politicians, kings, queens, presidents, over centuries have come and gone. We honor and pray for our president as we, for presidents who have been before and also will come after. They are important, but just presidents. You, however, are Lord, and you alone are worthy of our enduring praise. So in these chaotic political days, Remind us continually that our hope is finally not in the political figure or in a favored party, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all, over all events, over all seasons, and our Lord is moving all of history toward that day when he returns to rule and reign in a way for which we deeply long. We pray that your will would be done in our country at this time of uncertainty. But collectively and unitedly, we extend our allegiance and cast our vote to you. Because you alone have loved us perfectly. And you alone have a future and a hope for each of us. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. And I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll be dismissing you from the front to the back. So just stay in your seats until you dismiss this.